This week, my grandfather turned 97. When I called him, he and his wife were taking a tour of the Grand Canyon. <laughs> I uh, had to look up what year he was born. He was born in 1926. And I got to thinking, how many things that seemed impossible in 1926 are reality in 2023? TV, the computer, the internet, those video games that I know some of you play, those phones we keep in our pockets, nuclear power and space travel, the artificial heart and the polio vaccine, even running a mile in under four minutes. All of that seemed impossible in 1926. If you told someone when my grandpa was born about all this stuff, they would say, preposterous. Because back then it was. It's taken time and effort for the impossible to become possible. Work builds on other work, right? Nobody just went from no space travel to suddenly space travel. Someone had to want to achieve it and be motivated to work at it, to fail and try again and fail again and try again. All of it took hard work and persistence and teamwork. And it is in this way that the impossible becomes possible. So it is with unity in the church. We hear Paul write, be like-minded, one in spirit and of one mind. And we say, yeah, right. But what if unity among us isn't as impossible as it sounds? In chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul assumes that unity among the believers at Philippi is something within their reach, something they should expect and work for. And he lays out a path for how to get there. As we continue our look in Philippians at how do we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, we live together in unity. So what makes unity possible, not impossible? What makes it possible here and now? Why should we work for it? Why should it be a goal? And how do we get there? These are the questions that Paul answers for us this morning. So first, unity is possible because of something we already have. We see this in verse one. I think again about if you're, you're building on other people's work here, right? We have a foundation. Verse one, this word if sounds tentative to us in England, like maybe yes, maybe no. But in Greek, these are givens. This is something that is true. Given all of this that is true, you can count on what comes next. This relates a bit to what we talked about last week in the first part of this series, that we can conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ because of all that we already share in common, right? Common story, the gospel, common spirit, common struggle, common suffering. This verse one, we hear hints of the Trinity. There's encouragement in Christ. There's the comfort of love. It's hinting at the Father. There's the koinonia or the common life, participation, sharing in the spirit, tenderness and compassion. These are words of connection and unity. We can have unity in love because that's who God already is. It is that life that we receive and that we share in God. Unity and diversity in harmony and delight. I think of the triune life of self-giving love like that water gushing out of the rock. River of life flowing out of me, if you want to sing the old song. We can be united in love because of something we already share. We already share this sort of life 
in the triune God. That's a good thing. We've got a good foundation. Second, unity is possible because it is so desirable. We see this in verse 2 and then verses 16 and 18. Paul's first instruction to the Philippians is, make my joy complete. And he says at the end of the passage, when I see this coming true in you, I will rejoice. Make my joy complete. How? By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, literally one souled and of one mind. Making the impossible possible requires some strong motivation. Paul motivates us to work to unity, not simply by saying, be united, okay, but by expressing and pointing to the joy of it, his joy and ours. You too should be glad and rejoice with me. The hard work of unity, and we'll get to the hard part, but we start with the joy. It'll be worth it for the joy that it is to get there and to live in that way. We probably have heard Psalm 133 Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like oil dripping and running down, like being out in a summer rainstorm and not caring that you're out in the pouring rain and just getting soaking wet and splashing and laughing. Have you ever had that experience? That's some joy. That is what unity will feel like, joy. We could use some joy these days, right? There's a lot of grief and fear and anger. I think many of us are simply busy trying to find our footing amidst all the changes that have happened in the world and in here. Uh, I want to recommend a commentary to us that I'm going to quote from a couple times today by Lynn Kohick, Lynn Kohick's uh, commentary on Philippians. She writes, in the face of adversity, fear and selfishness tend to rule conduct. When things get hard, usually our best selves don't come out. That certainly happens out there. And it happens in here, and it happens in here, too. I want us to ask for a second, what best outcome have we imagined for ourselves at Redeemer? What's the best outcome we can imagine, say, in a year? Say, five years. Say, ten years. Maybe there's relationships we imagine restored or people returning. Maybe there's something you imagine we're doing in Highwood that gets you excited or people coming to Jesus. Maybe there's some in here who feel it is too late for a best outcome. I want to suggest to us that the best possible outcome for Church of the Redeemer would be unity here. Not to the exclusion of these other good things, but as the core of them, unity. And not uniformity. Scripture doesn't ask us for that but unity. That should be an essential for us and not a bonus. When I think about what unity feels like, I think about music. Yes, Bradley is still taking over. He is out of town, so I am there. I think about music. I think about a choir in particular. Because a choir doesn't work when the singers are competing with one another to be heard. You will never produce beautiful music that way. And a good choir does not need for every single person to be this amazing soloist. You can have a wonderful choir that can produce a transcendent sound if you have pretty good voices that learn how to blend together. 
Learn how to blend the rich variety of, of each voice into one unique, beautiful sound that learns to sing as one in harmony. That is the sound of brothers and sisters in Christ being one in spirit and of one mind. Think about the most beautiful piece of music that you have ever heard. And now make it 10 times more beautiful. That is the sound of unity in the body of Christ. I want that. Do you? Unity is desirable. Can you taste it? Hold on to that hope of joy. Remember that. Because here's where it gets hard. Unity is possible only to the extent that each of us takes a posture of humility. Each of us takes a posture of humility, especially verses 3 through 11. Now we get to the heart of the passage. There are so many sermons that you could preach out of this passage today. I'm trying to preach just one. Making the impossible possible always requires the posture of a learner, making mistakes and learning from them, being willing to be wrong and change your mind. Note that in the gospel passage, those who aren't able to change their mind end up missing Jesus. Being willing to embrace and celebrate the contributions of others and to incorporate them and to know your own strengths and weaknesses. Humility is the posture, the way of looking at ourselves and others that makes unity possible. Paul gives us some humility do's and don'ts. And we'll start with the don'ts. Don't act out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And don't look to your own interests. Selfish ambition. This is one word in Greek. And it's a word that can mean strife or contentiousness, having a party spirit or a disposition of hostility or opposition. In other words, you want to win. You come in just wanting to win over the other person, wanting something for yourself, wanting to get your own way. And then vain conceit. It's literally empty pride. Pride without any basis for pride. Like pride built on air, not substance. Now, in the context at Philippi, how you were perceived in the eyes of others was everything. That's where your self-worth came from. So the way you dressed, your status, your honor, your place at the table, your self-worth, your honor was directly connected to those things in the eyes of others. So you can understand it would be, you would think, oh, well, I better build myself up. That's where my self-worth comes from. Paul says, no, you don't get to advance your own interests and honor at the expense of others in the body of Christ. That's not conduct worthy of the gospel. And acting that way makes unity impossible. You're always trying to get a one-up on others. Similarly, a prideful attitude will get you nowhere because it makes you unable to learn or listen to others, including God. I think of the feeling when we're doing the humility don'ts, like you're in a crowd and you're getting jostled. This, you know, it's getting stepped on, you're bumping elbows, getting banged in the head, that jostling feeling. That's what community feels like when we're acting out of wrong motivations or clinging so tightly to our own interests that we have no space for the interests of others. That's what it feels like when we're not living in unity and humility. Sorry, I got self-conscious there for a minute. So those are the humility don'ts. Then we get to the humility do's. In humility, value others above yourselves. Look to the interests of others. 
Again, humility is a posture, a way of imagining yourself in relation to others, not just, well, I know that I'm secure, so I can do this humble thing that I know is below me, and look, I'll be humble. It's kind of like a politician who serves in a soup kitchen as a publicity stunt, right? It's really about them. Humility simply comes from understanding that we are no better and no worse than anyone else. So humility would be, I come down here, I sit here, and they come down too. You don't have to come down, it's okay. <laughs> it means I'm not up here because I'm anything special, and you're not down there because you're, you're anything less. We are equal in Christ, no better, no worse than one another. Humility comes from remembering that we are literally made of dust. We are creatures who depend on God for everything. Every gift, every contribution, everything we have, everything we make in this life, it all came from God and not us. And when we die, we turn back to dust. Humility comes from remembering how small our own understanding is compared to the wisdom of God, that we can see this much of his plan. That's enough. That's what he's given us to say, see. But we are two-dimensional pieces of paper compared to God, who is at least 10D, whatever that looks like. Whatever we feel so sure of, we could be wrong because we simply don't have all the data. We don't have all the data about anything and especially not about anyone. So when we can accept that, that we are creatures, dependent, limited, that frees us up to live, not by building ourselves up or always fighting to be heard, but by honoring and lifting up others right next to us, because they have important data too. They too are made in the image of God. And then we get to the biggest, humility do. Have the same mindset or attitude or posture among yourselves as in Christ Jesus. Take on the posture of our Lord, Participate in Jesus' way of being and living. Jesus, as son of the living God, is superior to us. He is an equal member of the Godhead in every way, and he did not grasp at that. He did not use it for his advantage. Versus the pagan gods, whose power was always about themselves. He didn't. He surrendered the perks of power to come to our level, to take the posture of a human, a body made of dust, to be physically dependent on daily bread, small in form and reputation, and humbly obedient to the Father, even when it led to humiliation and death. In other words, godly power shows up in self-giving love for the sake of others. Jesus shows us what God's power looked like in his incarnation, in his death, and in his resurrection. This is how we are to live as well. Humility looks like us throwing ourselves on our faces in light of that magnificent story. That's how I respond to it. Bowing down before our creator. Bowing down before Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Unity becomes possible as we take a posture of humility before God and towards one another. And lastly... Unity is possible as we work it out and watch our words. We have the foundation, participation in the life of God himself. We have the motivation, joy. We have the posture, humility. 
And now we have some action steps. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling and do everything without grumbling or arguing. We might read that verse about work and salvation and go, oh, hold on, Paul. He's not denying grace alone through faith alone. It's simply that those who are saved are called to live saved lives. I think this is how Scott puts it in his latest little commentary. We're called to work it out. We have a common struggle, as we talked about last time. You might call this sanctification, learning to live out who we already are in Christ. If you graduate from medical school, you're a doctor. Now, how are you going to practice medicine? How are you going to learn how to be a good doctor? That's what we're talking about here. And we're to work it out, not sort of casually or flippantly, but with fear and trembling. That's awe. These are the words like when God shows up in the Old Testament, and like we feel when we hear this Christ hymn, every knee shall bow. Soberness, knowing that it is God at work in us. When we're working out our salvation, when we're working toward unity, God is working in us through his spirit. And he's doing it for his delight. That word translated good purpose can also mean delight. Again, joy. As we work it out towards unity, God himself is at work in us. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. As we work it out, knowing that God is at work in our very midst, we especially ought to watch our words. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Now, if you, just off the top of your head, made a list of the top five worst sins, would these ones come out on top? They probably wouldn't for me if I hadn't been working on this sermon. But for Paul, they sort of do. In Scripture, sins of words show up all over the place. Think about all the you know, vice lists that you can think of where Paul says, these are the works of the flesh versus the works of the Spirit. For example, Romans 1, where it's this big thing about, oh, the Gentiles, bad. We think about sexual sin in Romans 1, but Paul also lists gossip and slander as things that they're doing, that they're condemning them. And really the same thing holds true in all the other vice lists. Murmuring and complaining, like we see in Israel in our passage today, these were sins of words that created that jostling and disharmony in the community. Our words matter. And I want to be very careful here, because part of what we are trying to do here in general is to build a culture in which we are free to disagree with one another and to speak up. So where we don't shut down legitimate concerns or questions or feedback, unity does not come through forced uniformity. So that is not what I'm trying to do. At the same time, Scripture is very clear that not every way of speaking is on the table for believers. It, we, can't, we don't get to have a free-for-all and be holy. Proverbs 16, 28, a perverse person stirs up conflict and a gossip separates close friends. James 3, 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father and with it we curse human beings who've been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Words matter. The stuff that happened here, the abuse, which I'm not going to talk about every week, I promise. I want to talk about it today because it happened largely, but not only, but largely through words. It happened through words that didn't reflect truth. It happened through gossip and even slander. 
And I want to say this because the community played a part in that. I did over the years. I'm having to repent for this stuff. I am. There's this little story that is so powerful in Lynn Kohick's commentary. She retells a popular Hasidic story. A man told nasty lies about the local rabbi throughout the town. After a bit, he was filled with remorse over his deeds and asked the rabbi's forgiveness. He also wanted to make things right. The rabbi told him to get a feather pillow, cut it open, and scatter the feathers to the wind. This the man did and returned to the rabbi. Then the rabbi said, now go and collect the feathers. The man's heart sank, for the feathers had flown far and wide. So too, the rabbi declared, did his rumors and lies fly, and there is no getting them back. Our words matter a lot. And unity is not possible when we use our words to bicker or gossip or complain or criticize. So, humility asks us to take a close look at how we use our words. Again, we're trying to build a community in which we are honest, in which concerns are raised, in which we handle disagreement well together. How we do that matters. Are we using our words to seek to agree with one another in the Lord? What is the motive behind our words? Are we seeking our own interests? Am I? <laughs> Sorry, I have to think about this in sermons too, right? Like, am I preaching to try to do something to you guys? That's abuse of power. What is my motive? Are we seeking our own interests? Are we venting or angry because our pride was hurt? Do we just want to get our own way? Are our words building up or tearing down? Have we spread feathers against our neighbor? We might need some humility. We might need some humility to find true unity in our life of words together. The good news is that God is faithful and there will be joy as we repair. So work it out. Watch your words. These are our action steps towards unity. As we do so, God will delight in us. And we will conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the good news. I want to end with an exercise of, I suppose you'd call it imaginative prayer. So I want to invite you, if you're comfortable, to close your eyes. You don't need to take notes on this. I mean, you can if you want. Just if you're comfortable, close your eyes or look down. And imagine that there's a suitcase sitting on your lap. Imagine opening it and seeing that it's full of your own interests. Not your needs. God is taking care of those, your own interests, whatever those may be. What do you see in that suitcase? How full is it? Are there lots of little things, maybe a big thing and some little things? What, what are the shapes of the things in there? I wonder if there's one of the things in that suitcase that you are clinging to the most. that you hold on to, that you don't want to lose.
imagine that Jesus is standing in front of you, looking at you with eyes of joy and delight and love. Imagine that he's holding out his hand to you. Maybe he's asking for that one object. Maybe he's asking for your whole suitcase. What would it be like to hand him what he's asking for? Can you trust him to take care of that interest on your behalf? If you find you just can't even imagine letting it go, that's okay. Just talk to Jesus about that. If you're able to, to do so, hand it to him. And imagine now that your hands, maybe even your lap, is free. Feel the lightness of that. Feel the joy of that. Or the fear, whatever you feel. But now imagine your hands are open. You are free to reach out now to your neighbors in love and unity and care as their hands are open too. Imagine the joy. <laughs> then you will shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to one another and to the word of life. Unity here is possible. May it be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.